0: Good evening, Harvest Church. Good evening, uh, those who are watching from elsewhere. Uh, Grace Fellowship family uh, in your homes. Uh, it's a joy to be able to share with you tonight. You can uh, open your Bibles to Second Peter chapter three. Second Peter chapter three. We'll be uh, specifically looking at the very last verse there, verse eighteen. Uh, but we'll be reading the whole chapter. Of 2 Peter chapter 3. My name is uh, JC Davison. I'm an intern at Grace Fellowship and uh, just delighted to be worshiping with you guys this evening. 2 Peter chapter 3. This is God's holy word. This is now the second letter that I'm writing to you, beloved. In both of them, I'm stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder that you should remember the predictions of the holy prophets and the commandment of our Lord and Savior through your apostles. Knowing this, first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, following their own sinful desires. They will say, Where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. For they deliberately overlook this fact, that the heavens existed long ago, Therefore, beloved, since you are waiting for these, be diligent to be found by him without spot or blemish and at peace, and count the patience of our Lord as salvation. Just as our beloved brother Paul also wrote to you, according to the wisdom given him, as he does in all his letters, when he speaks in them of these matters, there are some things in them which are hard to understand, which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction as they do the other scriptures. You, therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand, take care that you are not carried away with the error of lawless people and lose your own stability, but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. To him be the glory, both now and to the day of eternity. Amen. May the Lord add his blessing to the reading, preaching, and hearing of his word. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you've given us a word, a word that shines into the darkness of this world, telling us the way of truth and righteousness, but also that shines into the darkness of our own hearts, exposing our sin and illuminating truth. But we ask, Holy Spirit, that you would illuminate the Lord Jesus to us tonight, his beauty, his goodness and grace, that you would warn us where we need to be warned, encourage us where we need to be encouraged for Jesus' sake and to his glory. Amen. If you've ever uh, climbed up something high, maybe you've climbed a tall ladder or uh, a rock climbing wall at a summer camp, perhaps, or um, a cliff or a a tall tree, if you love climbing trees, Um, one thing that you might get told if you're climbing something tall is uh, a common piece of advice is don't look down. Don't look down. And so why do we get told this? You get told don't look down because sometimes what happens if you look down and you realize you're at a perilous height that could uh, bring injury or harm to you, it can cause you to freeze up and to stop. And that, that can be dangerous. And so, so there's a sense in which you don't want to look down. But there's another sense in which uh, it's good and fitting to be aware of the danger because if you can acknowledge and be aware of the fact that there is peril, that there is the chance of harm, then that compels you to be more careful, to make sure your handholds are firm, to make sure that you're moving in strength, that every grip is placed precisely and intentionally going in the direction you want to go. So you don't want to be paralyzed, but you want to be aware. And the same thing we could say is true in our spiritual life, that we are all, as it were, on a cliff. And far below, there is deadly peril. And a sort of peril that's not just to the injury of our bodies, but to the eternal ruin of our souls. The stakes are extremely high in, this, in life, in this world. There's danger of what we call apostasy. That's a word we use to talk about forsaking the faith, forsaking the church of God. And we know that in in God's purposes, when he works on a heart, a heart he truly saves, uh, never truly loses uh, the regenerating work of the Spirit. But from our perspective, the way we see it, we see people that seem to cast off the faith. And we've all known people like this who seemed to be running well and then have cast off the faith they once professed. And there's a danger here, as we look down and we think, how do I know that that might not be me? People that seem godlier than I have fallen away. And we might get paralyzed, and we might be stuck thinking, just what do I do when I'm looking down? And this is a danger Peter's addressing in this letter. He's looking at a church that is being attacked by false teachers who are seeking to draw many away from the Lord. To turn them aside to live after their own lusts. And Peter says to them, Take care, in 3 verse 17, take care, church, that you are not carried away with the error of lawless people and lose your own stability. Don't lose your grip. Don't let go of Christ. But in a sense, he finishes saying, Don't look down, but look up. He says, in his response to how to not be taken with the error of false teachers, he says in this, in verse 18, but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Peter's antidote to apostasy is to grow in the grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. This is what we're called to in the Christian faith, to add to our faith, to grow in our faith, and just as uh, you best stay on a bicycle when you keep moving and pedaling, so the best way to avoid falling in our Christian life is to keep moving, to keep growing, to keep investing in an ongoing relationship with Jesus. Because here's what I want us to see today: is that it's a growing relationship with Jesus Christ as our Savior and as our Lord. That's the best antidote to apostasy. To falling away and this is something that we ought to be concerned about and the reason is because we are really easily deceived Uh, false teachers have a heyday in the church and this is because and this is something in all of us false teachers tell you what you already wanted to hear because usually the tactic is to make it so that you can kind of believe what you actually want to believe and to behave how you would really like to behave. And the two ways they do this, and have done this from the start, is in undermining the authority of the Word of God and in denying the reality of the judgment of God. They undermine God's Word and they deny His judgment. These are the two classic moves of false teachers. We see this right back in the Garden of Eden with the devil himself, who first we see, he questions God's Word. Has God said undermining the authority of the word. And then he says, you will not surely die, denying the reality of judgment. And Peter sees the false teachers attacking the church in his day in the same way. In chapter 3, verses 3 to 4, we read that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, following their own sinful desires. And here's what they'll say, verse 4. Where is the promise of his coming? Where is the promise? That's a word of promise. A word Jesus spoke, saying he would come again. They said, where is the promise of his coming? Where is his word going to be fulfilled? Is this word Christ spoke really true? They are undermining God's word. And the word of his coming. That is, his coming in judgment. His coming to make what's wrong right. They say, for ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. Life is just going on. Why worry about living a holy life? Why seek to discipline yourself to follow Christ when you could live after the desires of the flesh? Is he, you really think he's coming in judgment? It's been, a, it's been an awful long time. And they're saying this not 2,000 years later like us. It's been a long time. Where is the promise of his coming? Because you see, what happens, as soon as you question God's word and undermine his coming in judgment then all of a sudden, there's no consequences for your behavior. There's no eternal um, repercussions for how you choose to live in this life. And and often, if you might notice, with people that fall away from Christ, um, often the, the changing beliefs actually come on the back end. It's sinful patterns of life that come first. And then, in a sense, in a way to justify this pattern of living in their consciences, Uh, There there comes a sort of a theological justification. Well, I'm not sure a loving God would really send people to hell. Why would he judge me? I'm not really that bad. There's far worse out there. And we see in these false teachers, this false teaching goes hand in hand with a reprobate way of life. Peter describes these false teachers variously as proud, greedy, sensual, immoral, rebellious, and slanderous. And and choice phrases such as these, uh, he describes them as those who follow the polluting desires of the flesh, who have eyes full of adultery that never stop looking for sin, and hearts trained in greed. And we see this in the world around us. It's evident. But we even see this in our own churches. We can see seeds of these even in our own hearts, the seeds of immorality, of greed, of covetousness. And Peter responds when he sees these false teachers teaching these falsehoods, living this false way of life. Uh, His response is to correct them and and ask whether the word of Christ has really failed. He says, no. In verse 5, he responds to them and their denial of judgment, saying that they deliberately overlook, they deliberately overlook this fact, that... God's word was the word that created the world. The word of God is the word that made all things. But more than that, the word of God is the same word that declared the judgment that came in the flood. God promised a judgment that would cover the whole earth, and that judgment came according to his word. And Peter argues that just as surely as this word of judgment was carried out in the flood, so surely this will be carried out when Christ comes Again, he says in verse 7, but by the same word, this word of promise, the heavens and earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. There's going to be a reckoning. There's going to be a judgment on these sinful lives. And recognizing this, Peter exhorts the congregation in verse 11, saying, since these things are thus to be dissolved... What sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness? Holiness and godliness. And in verse 14, he says, Be diligent to be found by him without spot or blemish and at peace. If all our works will be exposed on the final day, how we ought to desire to live holy lives now. But the problem that we've seen, the difficulty is that we see the strength of sin in our flesh. We see the allure. Of the world. We see how easily we crave ungodliness and we wonder how can I not fall prey to those things? How can I live a life of holiness and blamelessness at the day of Christ? How do we keep ourselves from falling? It's not going to be by our own innate moral goodness. It's not going to be our intellectual certainty of reasoned apologetic arguments. It's not going to be through a family or church attendance, any of these things. But we'll only be preserved through a relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. It's a relationship with the Lord Jesus that is the key to it all. That's what Peter's been getting at this whole letter, and so he ends after warning the church not to be carried away with the error of the lawless and people and to lose their stability, he says, grow in the grace and the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. This is the antidote to apostasy, to grow in the grace and knowledge of Christ as Lord and Savior. So what does this mean, to grow in the grace and knowledge of Christ? To, to, to grow in the grace and knowledge of Christ we can really think of as two terms that describe our relationship with Jesus. We can think of grace as what uh, we receive from God. It's, grace is God giving to us. And knowledge is, is our response to that initiating grace. Knowledge is us to God. So we see a reciprocal relationship here. We can think of grace as, uh, a good definition of it, is the exercise of God's goodness to those who don't deserve it. God's goodness exercised towards those who don't deserve it, which we see most evidently in the death, resurrection, the redeeming work of the Lord Jesus Christ. And this grace is, is sure and given to his people, but we're also we're called to grow in grace. And we, we don't get more of what Christ has already done for us, but as we grow in grace, what we grow in is the experience and enjoyment of the goodness of Jesus towards us. We experience and enjoy more of his goodness. And we receive this grace most naturally in what we call in our tradition the means of grace, the means God's given for us to think about and enjoy the goodness of Jesus. As the goodness of his works are displayed in his word, and as we read, meditate, hear his word, see his word in the sacraments, we enjoy the goodness of Jesus, reflecting upon all that he is to us. Growing in grace, but we also grow in knowledge. And knowledge here is a relational word. Because we, we know that knowing a person is very different than knowing a subject or knowing a thing, right? Knowing a person implies some level of personal relationship. Uh, I remember when I was a kid, uh, one of my favorite authors was, uh, his name was Sigmund Brouwer. I really liked his novels when I was a kid. And I was excited when I found out that one of my closest friends in elementary school, his mother was second cousins with Sigmund Brower. And I don't know, for some reason I thought this was really cool that Sigmund Brower was second cousins with my friend's mom. And as exciting as that was, I didn't know Sigmund Brower. My friend Caleb didn't even know Sigmund Brower. I'm not even sure his mom really knew him either. Uh, But I knew his books, I knew his writings, but that's what we're saying, We're seeing knowledge, of, knowing a person, when we say we know someone, we're saying that we have some level of personal relationship with them. And that's what Peter's talking about when he says growing in the knowledge of Christ. He uses this phrase actually a bunch of times in this letter. And each time Peter uses this phrase, it's not just abstract knowing about Christ, but it's used to refer to the whole of our relationship with him. In 2 verse 20, he writes that we've escaped the world's impurity through the knowledge of Christ. That is, we, we've been saved from the sinful world through this relationship of knowing Christ. And in chapter 1, verse 8, he speaks of us needing to be fruitful and effective in the knowledge of Christ. So that's in our relationship with Him as we add to our faith, we to bear good fruit, to be effective. Knowing Christ, it implies um, a, a covenantal connection but also a conscious response to, to know Him at the first in salvation and to continue living in a way that knows Him. And this isn't uh, just knowing um, about Him, but what actually happens when you truly know someone, the more you get to know them, what happens is the more your patterns of behavior become conformed to their desires. You, you learn how to act in a way that pleases Him. Uh, we see this in relationships. Um, when you don't know someone very well, it, it might be kind of like when I was dating my wife and I tried to start this note app on my phone to figure out kind of her basic preferences, that, that she, she likes Italian food, she likes dark colors. So, so I knew it. I'm like, okay, if I want to do something that pleases her, I should try to do these sorts of things. But then the more you get to know someone and the relationship deepens, those um, understandings become so natural to where um, we were joking the other day that, you know, I was cutting apple slices for my wife, and I just knew I was cutting them the exact right width for her. She has a very particular uh, size. She likes her apple slices. We're just laughing, saying, does anyone else in the world know exactly how thick you like your apple slices? And I know that's a silly example, but it shows that the deeper your relationship with someone, the more... Their preferences are just natural for you to reach out to. And the more we get to know Jesus, the more the things he loves, the things that he hates, become natural to us. And we learn to live in a way that pleases him. And you see, as we follow Jesus' will and conform our behavior to it, we actually become like him. We become more and more conformed to his image. As we enjoy his presence, we learn to imitate his person. And so we need to grow in our, the gracious reception of Christ's goodness and grow in our knowledge and understanding of him. And as we work on this relationship, in the same way that uh, the strongest marriages, the ones you would say are unassailable by the temptations of the world, are the ones where they're continually growing and nurturing the relationship, seeking to deepen it, so our Christian faith is best protected the more we're seeking to grow in and nurture our relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. And the more we've experienced His grace and goodness, the more we grow into His likeness, the less alluring become the cries of the false teachers, the less attractive become the lusts of the flesh because we're enraptured with the beauty of Jesus. We're to grow in our relationship with Christ. But Peter points out that this is a relationship with Christ as our Savior and as our Lord. And I think this will be really practical for us. Uh, a, a way to work on a relationship is to actually break the relationship down into sort of different orientations, as it were. So again, with, uh, with marriage, Dr. Joel Beakey, he, he wrote a book called Friends and Lovers, just basically saying, hey, here's a practical way to grow in your marriage. Focus on your friendship, the, the relation of friend, And then the relation of lover. There's these different dynamics at play in the relationship that you can focus on to be more specific. And so for us as Christians to focus on our relationship with Christ as our Savior, but also as our Lord, these are the two fundamental relations we all have as believers to the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, These of Savior and Lord, they pop up all over the New Testament. And really, interestingly, Uh, it's implied in his very name. The name Jesus means Jehovah saves, or God is salvation. The role of savior is implied in the name Jesus. And um, Christ means Messiah, the anointed one, or we could think the anointed king. Lord is implied by the title Christ. And so Jesus Christ, our savior, and our Lord. And so let's, let's look at each of these briefly and see how can we, by focusing on these two relationships, learn to deepen our relationship with Jesus. So first, looking at the relationship of Savior. When we think of Christ as Savior, what we're thinking of is how he has rescued us, him as rescuer or deliverer. And what does he rescue us from? He rescues us from our enemies, the world, the flesh, the devil. Preeminently, he saves us from our sins. He delivers us from slavery to fleshly lusts, service to vain idols, and subjection to the will of the devil. And so when we think of how do we approach Christ as Savior every day, here's a a couple categories I think we can be helped to think of it in. Think of it in, in terms of praise, prayer, practice, and hope. We can praise Him for salvation past, pray for salvation present, and hope for salvation future. So in praise, every day we can learn to praise Christ for his saving work, that the ransom has been paid, that he has delivered our souls, that he's redeemed us, reconciled us to the Father, drawn us out of the kingdom of darkness. Grow in your relationship with Christ as you learn to praise him for his great salvation. But we also have a present outworking of salvation in our lives. And so we learn to pray, even in the Lord's Prayer, Forgive us our debts. Because we see that we have daily need of forgiveness for our sins. And as we learn to confess our sins to the Lord, that's an act of going to Christ as Savior. We also pray, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us, or rescue us, you could say, from evil. As we recognize the allure of the world and the, uh, the way our flesh reaches out, as we pray to Christ as our deliverer, to deliver us from that, to lead us away from that, we are growing in our relationship with Christ as Savior. And this is something we also practice as we recognize, again, the need for us to mortify our sin, to kill it, to put it to death, to let it have no root, to cast it away from us like fire from our bosom, to let sin have no way in our lives. We are practicing living out in knowledge in response to Christ as the one who saved us from sin, And we grow in this relationship in hope as we look to Christ as the one who will one day fully and finally free us from every vestige of sin. Every, every defilement of flesh that we struggle with to be one day in heaven, fully and finally freed from it. What a hope. What a Savior we have. We know Christ as Savior, but we also grow in knowing Him as Lord Or we could say as king. That is, Christ as our Lord is is our leader. He's our lawgiver. He's our provider. He's our protector. And so we can praise him daily. Praise him for his lordship and how he has conquered our enemies, defeated death, disarmed the devil, how he has brought our stubborn hearts into submission to his will, brought us into the kingdom of light, to have the inheritance of the saints, in light. We can praise Christ as Lord daily, but we also pray, pray according to his lordship. We pray that his kingdom would come, that his will would be done. This is responding to Christ as Lord, that his kingdom would come not just in the world, but deep into our own hearts, that he would reign and rule, that he would lead us and guide us in his will. And so we practice as well in response to Christ as Lord, we seek to walk in his ways, to keep his laws, to love him and serve him, and to love and serve our brothers and sisters, our neighbors. We practice, and we also hope. We have hope in Christ as the great Lord, whose one day, whose kingdom will fill all in all, and will reign in a new heavens and new earth, as we read, where righteousness or justice dwells. We can grow in our relationship with Christ as we grow in what it means to know Him as our Savior and to know Him as our Lord. And this is a guard for us against apostasy. This is the antidote that keeps us climbing. These are like the two great handholds, as it were, that keep us going instead of freezing in paralysis, but climbing, climbing, looking, looking towards that final day. It guards against apostasy, and here's how. We are protected, and we are kept safe from the allure of the false teachers and the ways of false living because when you know Christ as Savior, you've experienced the forgiveness of sins, and you've enjoyed peace of conscience. So how could you go back and defile your conscience with sin and have unrest in your conscience once again? Because when you know Christ as Savior, it means that you've experienced freedom from slavery, freedom from slavery to deceitful, fleshly lusts. And if you've known that, how could you go back and re-entangle yourself by picking up those chains that once bound you? Knowing Christ as Savior. And when you know Christ as Lord, that means that you've experienced that His commandments are for your good. That holiness truly is the way of happiness. That obedience truly leads to joy. And if you've experienced that, why would you go back and start living it in a way that's only to your hurt, that's only to your detriment, that harms your relationships, that leaves you sour and dull? Knowing Christ as Lord, when you know Him as Lord, it means that you've experienced His care, His provision. His protection as you entrust yourself to His will, as you seek to serve Him in total allegiance. And if you've experienced that, how could you go back to serving those vain idols that offered you nothing but cold indifference? To leave a personal loving Lord for these cold, unrelenting idols. To know Christ as Savior and Lord is the best antidote to apostasy. And when we know Him that way, then we can freely say with the Apostle Paul, whatever was gained to me, He says in Philippians 3, 7, and 8, Whatever was gained to me, I've counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss for the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. It's all about knowing Jesus. And so as we recognize the danger before us, the real danger, the real peril, we press on to know the Lord. We press on to grow in the grace and the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. To grow in grace. It's all of His grace. And we trust that this grace that renewed us will carry us all the way home, that it's, it'll be true for us as we sang that through many dangers, toils and snares, I've already come. And it's grace that has brought me safe this far, and grace will lead me all the way home. Christ came with grace upon grace. He was the one with grace grace poured upon his lips. He is the gracious one, and so how could we not proclaim with Peter as he ends this epistle, to him, to the Lord Jesus Christ, be glory, both now and to the day of eternity. He will be glorified in eternity, and we have an opportunity to glorify Christ now, to glorify him in our praises, to glorify him in our obedience, to enjoy all that he is to us. What a good Lord to serve. What a good king to follow. What a beautiful Savior we have. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that we have such a Lord. Such a Lord who's so strong and mighty as Jesus. Such a Savior that's so mighty to deliver us from sin and slavery and everything that held us. We thank you that we have a spirit to work faith and hearts to attach us to Christ. And thank you that when we are attached to Christ, Nothing can snatch us away from Him. Lord, deepen faith in our hearts. Deepen our love for You and our love for one another that each one would be increasingly growing in grace. And Lord, if there's any that have not experienced that first touch of grace, that first renewing grace in the heart, oh Lord, would there be a reaching out to You tonight, a reaching out of the heart to Christ for deliverance, to Christ for salvation, a bowing of the knee and will to Him as Lord. And God, for us that have bowed the knee to Christ, help it to go deeper. Help us to press on to know the Lord, to obey him more fully, to trust him more deeply, to love him more intimately. Help us, Lord, to grow, to know this Lord that has bought us and saved us by his blood. Would we know him more each day? We pray for his sake. In his name we pray. Amen. Let's stand and respond as we sing Yet not I, but through Christ in me, thinking of the words about this gift of grace in Christ the Redeemer. Our joy, our righteousness, our freedom. Our hope is only Jesus. Our lives are wholly bound to His. We can sing, all is mine, yet not through our own works, not through our own efforts, not even through our own attempts to grow in grace and knowledge, but through Him, the one who gives grace upon grace. Let's praise our Lord.
1: we go out into the week receive uh, the blessing of our God and Savior. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you his peace. Amen.